Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Evan Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, I'm I'm mixed, Ed, because it is the mm-hmm. most beautiful day in Glasgow. It's like a real last burst of summer sort of day and I spent the majority of it in the park seeing a couple of friends. But then I did hear that the Greenland ice sheet has melted beyond the point of... <laughs> We're past the point of no return now. So, you know, just thinking about the environment and trying not to cry whilst also having um, half a bottle of wine in the park. How are you? Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, trying not to think about things, uh, <laughs> as everyone often is. But, you know, I'm, I'm all right. I It's Labor Day weekend here, so I get to have a, a three-day weekend, which hey. is quite nice. And I got a renewed appreciation for how badly HBO and Warner Brothers messed up the HBO Max rollout this weekend. Oh, crikey. I remember at the time everyone was like, okay, so they already have HBO Go and HBO Now, so what happens to those? Well, they both, they, they all kind of still exist, I guess, but, you know, some of them are being supplanted and, and, and everyone being just kind of confused by it and how they had all these different apps and some were closing, some weren't. Uh, but because it didn't really affect me, I didn't pay a huge amount of attention to it, but... As we discussed last week, I uh, signed up for HBO Max for a free week trial in order to watch Harley Quinn and Search Party and anything else I could find time to. In the end, I didn't have much time to watch anything other than those. And I thought, well, I already get HBO regularly through Hulu, so I should probably just get rid of that and then sign up for HBO Max. So I thought that seems like it'd be very straightforward. But then I went into my Hulu and it said, oh, I already have HBO Max. I'm pretty sure I don't. Because so surely someone would have told me this. <laughs> like somewhere I would have got an email saying, hey, you have this already. And surely all of their originals would be showing up in Hulu for me. Mm-hmm. Seems weird that that's the case. So I, I had to do some digging and it was like, oh, no, apparently I've had HBO Max for months. And the reason why I couldn't see any of their originals is that you have to still sign into the HBO Max app separately in order to do that. And I was just like... That seems like that that setup in and of itself is like I don't have a huge amount of a problem with. I think it's inconvenient, but you know, it's it's more or less fine. They obviously want to drive people to their app. But I just thought it was really, really funny and an illustration of how badly that has happened that I had that service for about four months and just had no idea that I had access to all of that stuff. And I just thought that was a real good indication of how badly that rollout had that you know they attracted some new customers but they also kind of didn't seem to inform the old customers of everything that was going on which you know not great when you're trying to compete with the the netflixes of the world wild (laughs) (laughs) uh and then in terms of uh culture this week uh like i said watched the rest of harley quinn uh which is great um second season ends really strongly i hope they do more uh i watched Seasons two and three of Search Party, which were uh, fantastic. And I'm really glad that that show already has a fourth season filmed and will be showing it 
at some point next year because uh, it would really suck if I had to, like, COVID delayed all of that even longer than, you know, the gap between seasons was when they were swapping networks. And uh, I also watched a uh, King Who movie. Uh, King Who is a Chinese director of the sort of 60s and 70s uh, through to the 90s, I think, but his most famous work was in the 60s and 70s. Uh, kind of formative wuxia movie, uh, Dragon Inn, which uh, was a ton of fun. One of those movies that I've been meaning to watch for a really long time. And, you know, it's really nice when you watch a movie that, you know, has been build as you know like obviously very important very seminal you know this thing that's had this like really long reach in in chinese cinema and and also once those movies started being seen in the west you know how it really influenced a lot of western cinema as well mm. it's really nice when you watch one of those and you watch it oh it's this is just fun this is just a really really enjoyable epic that's got great action and fun characters and you know it's nice when you watch one of those movies that like like you know has been built up as being massively important and you're just like oh yeah it is that but also it's you know a fun movie to watch and that's that's one of the things i like about watching old movies when you've discovered that it's not really homework it's just you know a good time that's what we're here for a good time mm. <laughs> a good time uh long time pending <laughs> <laughs> someone who wasn't having a good time this week and we'll get into the news now uh of course was robert pattinson who oh was who you know the news broke the other day that uh, he has contracted covid-19 on was working on the batman which had just recently re-entered production and it was just, that was just one of those things where i think on one level like of course he was the one who caught it because there's just something about his whole attitude to his stardom and his life where he, he doesn't have any of the kind of airs of being a big movie star of course he would be the one to uh contract it but i think that really concisely kind of illustrates the problem with trying to ramp up production on big movies even in the most like you know even on a movie like that where money really isn't that much of an object you can really kind of take every precaution you can for the most important person on that movie <laughs> like the guy who is the titular character to get it really underlined like how difficult it is going to be until there is a vaccine for production on film and television to get even like remotely close to normal for a really long time speaking of vaccines do you think that this is going to be like when uh our pats took his stalker out for dinner and bored her so that she stopped stalking him <laughs> i wonder Maybe. i wonder if he's gonna fix it for us <laughs> there was that incredibly well-pitched viral tweet about you know of course he got it batman's mask is basically the inversion of the masks that we should all be wearing <laughs> um it was, it was very good well done sir yeah it's oh it, it's this funny thing with we're reckoning in terms of celebrity culture and this crunch and collapse and yet also the kind of sort of deepening of the furrows in sort of class and hierarchy and, and social status. Because uh, I think The Rock and his entire family tested positive recently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I forgot, I, I entirely forgot about The Rock's wrestling uh, career. And I forgot that his like whole gambit, like his, his uh, catchphrase was, you know, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? And I just took 
a tweet saying like they, they all knew they tested positive because they couldn't smell what the rock was cooking incredibly literally <laughs> i thought it was some kind of slight against the fact that he might not season his food anyway <laughs> it's this thing where um you know it's like oh if even our pats has it and remember like cast up cast our minds back if we can uh what even is time anymore although we'll get onto that later when tom hanks got it mm. and, and there was this real kind of like oh my God, protect Tom Hanks at all costs. But I think that genuinely did, and I know I've said this before, but I do think that is when a lot of this became very real for people of like, mm. oh no, wait, anyone can get it. But of course, there are some people who have better access uh, access to tests and treatment or will, you know, as much as something like long COVID could, obviously I'm not trying to diminish how devastating that is on your life but to at least have the money to be like well i can afford the medical care that i will need um for the rest of my life yeah our pats i just like of all the things guys of all the things look i still haven't been to the cinema disclosure i've been to many a pub and a restaurant but in terms of like ah so so who knows none of us are winning in this it is a horrible game and i would like the game to finish please but of all things shooting a film and that kind of film now in this pandemic is that just me like ah I don't know I don't know yeah I mean you could see movies being made on a smaller scale being able to wear it where you don't have as many people around and you can you know there's not anything quite as intensive as I imagine a lot of like the action scenes and things like that in as there presumably are in the Batman. And also, you know, there was that video going round of showing how people on soap operas are kissing mannequins at the moment, like, <laughs> uh, as a solution for being able to continue filming those shows, but obviously not being able to have the kind of human contact that is kind of integral to <laughs> shows that are about, you know, kind of like romance and scandal and things like that. And... Yeah, it, it, this definitely felt like of the projects that could be going back into production, this was the exact wrong model for it because you have so many people on those sets. Yeah. It's going to be so hard to create, you know, a bubble where people aren't being exposed. It's going to be so hard to prevent anyone involved from getting COVID. I mean, not totally impossible. Obviously, we've seen what the NBA have managed to do with it and it's been like largely successful there. But that was really like a Herculean effort for a organization that is, you know, has billions of dollars invested in making sure that the NBA season completes and as much money as you have for the Batman. Clearly there isn't the kind of resources available where you take every person on this like hundred, if not thousand member crew and we're like, okay, yeah, we're all going to put you up for, however long it takes us to make this movie that clearly wasn't going to happen whereas you know another movie that is currently in production like the new paul thomas anderson movie like you can see that as what is presumably like a fairly modestly budgeted movie on a reasonably small scale it would be way easier for them to kind of maintain that level of control and closeness and it also probably doesn't have as long or intensive a shooting schedule yeah yeah, for sure. 
speaking of which, of the new PTA, uh, it was announced this week that uh, Cooper Hoffman, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, is going to be playing one of the leads in the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which I don't believe has a title yet, but you know, there have been some details about it revealed. It's this kind of set in LA in the 1970s. I think it may, mainly focuses on a high school uh, in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley, where a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, certainly a lot of his early movies, tended to be uh, focused because that's where he grew up. And uh, it stars Bradley Cooper, stars uh, one of the Heim sisters, and is kind of a you know kind of a big ensemble cast, lots of different perspectives by the sounds of it. So kind of him returning somewhat to his earlier style, which is quite uh, exciting. As much as I have loved a lot of the movies he's made recently, particularly Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread, it's quite interesting to see him maybe returning to that kind of milieu and style that he hasn't visited for a while. And also, like, it is hard not to kind of get a little bit choked up at the thought of him working with the son of one of his, his closest creators on a new on a new project. You oh, know, it's very... Ed, Ed, careful, you're going to set me off. Because I definitely, <laughs> when, you, when you sent me the news and I just, like, I was, I think the internet also reacted similarly to me. I think there was lots of Leonardo DiCaprio crying memes going around. I, what I find really interesting is, I mean, it's so beautiful and so resonant in terms of this recursion of, like, life and stuff. And that was deep of me, wasn't it? Life and stuff. Mm. Well done, Emily, use your words. But what I'm really interested in is, like, oh, so we're returning to that like you said, like that kind of place and time uh, era, really, that he sort of explored in Inherent Vice. But obviously that's that was an adaptation and from a very different perspective. But I'm like, are we about to see the most personal film PTA has ever made? Because mm. of one thing that he's done, it's never really been... I mean, we all, we all know that I'm a PTA FAN, but he, he manages to sort of have a really dark sense of humour about things but always at a distance and never in an edgelordy way. And obviously, like, I think Punch Drunk Love and Phantom Thread are both very revealing in terms of relationships and maybe how he feels about relationships. Um, And I personally think, like, his two-handers, like The Master as well, for example. And again, those kind of, like, it's always, like, central conflict between two men or a strange relationship between a man and a woman, right? Like, there will be blood, you know, you can kind of rattle it down to a bit of that i guess hard eight is is more that's the the most sort of singular protagonist other than maybe boogie nights sorry i'm thinking out loud now <laughs> that's what i do on this podcast <laughs> if anyone <laughs> forgot to remind you get to the point emily but like in terms of stuff that is actually from his lived experience and that looks like it you know we haven't seen that yet mm. And I'm like, this is interesting if we're actually going to get to something, well, genuinely quite autobiographical, even if it's sort of inspired by, but it's like, oh, is someone having a little bit of a Fellini phase now? Mm. Yeah, because I think, I think previously, like, the only thing you could point to is, like, things are, like, oblique, like, his dad was, like, a local TV anchor in the set in the 70s and 80s, I think, in in LA and so you can kind of see maybe some of that's in like the Philip Philip Baker Hall character in Magnolia and that kind of whole thing about you know TV you know like it's all very much or or you're kind of like extrapolating like is his 
you know, is is like the Jason Robard things, him drawing on his relationship with his dad. But, you know, there's never been anything that you can really pin down, which is one of the things that I think makes him a really fascinating filmmaker is yeah. that sense of mystique and the fact that he has pointedly said, yeah, I don't do uh, director's commentaries ever, anymore. Um, not since, I think Boogie Nights was like the last one he did. And after that, he like got so annoyed that people like mistook some of the things he was saying or misinterpreted some of the things he said in that commentary that he was like you know i'm I'm not gonna you know do that and it's not like he's unwilling to talk about his, his work obviously whenever he has a new film out he'll like go on you know film comment or whatever and talk for like three hours but like he's never been someone who's totally out there and sort of talking about himself so yeah so it's, yeah. it's interesting to think that maybe this is perhaps reflecting something a little bit different and not doing like the phantom fred thing where it's very pointedly like a movie about his his relationship with Maya Rudolph in some way because he talks about how the idea came to him after he was just incredibly sick and she was looking after him. I but love like, that story. But yeah, it's like it's 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 not exactly a one to one. I would hope. Um, yeah, you know. yeah. Feel <laughs> so. that. Feel that. I yeah. I completely agree with you. I sort of was also thinking about Fellini, and I and I do feel like in terms of Amacor and mm. how kind of funny that is as well. And I think yeah. you're right. Like there is that PTA mystique where it's like something that he is just like completely interested in and devotes himself to, but you do not know where he's going to go next. Yeah. Like it, the, he's the only filmmaker where I'm like, you could literally do anything. And, and I think there's kind of sort of a bit of resonance with uh, Kubrick in that way. Mm -hmm. Also someone like Karen Kusama, because any chance I get to mention Karen Kusama, I'm gonna. Um, mm -hmm. These are directors who I think we can say are like auteurs and they have such a distinctive look and feel to their films as well. That that's the thing that carries them. And I think that's the beauty of being able to be, I don't know, to have that, that crisp of vision and that recognisable as signature that you can put it to anything. Mm, yeah. I, I I really also like how he has not gone entirely that Kubrick thing of like not working much because yeah. there did seem to be a time when you know when you had that five-year gap between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood and then another five-year gap between that and The Master where I decided when it's like oh, is he going to be like one of these people who only puts out a movie like once or twice a decade at the most and then like immediately after that it's like okay Here's your, here's your inherent vice. Here's Junun. Here's uh, uh, yeah. Phantom Fred for you. Here's twelve Heim videos. Like <laughs> yeah, I like, I like how he has just like really seemed to embrace over the last couple of years like a passion for just like doing a lot of things, which is yeah. nice to see because I like his work and I like to see more of it. And I do wonder how much of that is like tied up in like how frustrating a process it was getting the master made where that was a movie that he'd like yeah took so many years to make and it was meant to star jeremy renner at one point oh christ and, like... <laughs> <laughs> i did not know that oh god sorry ed that's temporarily ended me can you imagine oh yeah. sorry continue uh, <laughs> uh but it was like that was what and also inherent vice kind of had that as well where originally that was meant to be robert downey jr in the lead role oh, i can see that yeah yeah that one certainly <laughs> makes a lot more sense than, than jeremy renner, jeremy um, renner. <laughs> the, man, the man from the app <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry uh <laughs> and uh, 
I, I wonder if like that experience of those two projects taking up such a colossal amount of his time and energy and like having all these setbacks is what's made him be like, right, I'm just going to like grab some drones and I'm going to hang out with Johnny Greenwood in India for a bit. And we're going to put that out, you know, if like maybe that's the thing that's driven him to be more prolific in recent years. Because I could imagine like if it takes you 10 years to make two films that maybe you would think, yeah, I'll probably try and make a bit more stuff now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking of uh, people who don't make films that often, David Fincher has uh, a new movie coming out on Netflix called Mank, about uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz, the co-writer of Citizen Kane, uh, starring Gary Oldman as uh, Mank, as apparently people called him. And uh, they released some images from it this week, Netflix did through Twitter, of what the film looks like. And uh, it's, it's caused a lot of discussion and consternation and garment rending online uh, among some kind of members of the film community because you know he's shooting it digitally and it's in black and white and all this sort of stuff which i found to be a weird reaction purely because like i don't think fincher has shot anything on film since maybe zodiac maybe not even zodiac i think zodiac was famously shot digitally um Mm. like he he's been such a advocate and user of digital film over the past like decade and a half they kind of seem very weird i think the only the reason people seem to react is like one of the shot a couple of the shots were just like of people with like sky behind them and it looks not great it kind of had that thing with digital black and white photography where it all kind of looks like someone's just put the grayscale filter on it doesn't seem as if like anyone's paid attention to like color grade or you know or or, uh, temperature or anything like that but a bunch of the other ones like looked really lush and gorgeous and it kind of made me think that uh people are overreacting to you know five or six screenshots yes yeah it's just oh it's endless isn't it this sort of like i don't know why anyone bothers doing first look anymore i mean there is Mm. obviously the gospel of sonic (laughs) (laughs) But like, I'm I'm I hold my hands up. I'm entirely guilty of this. But you know what? What else are you doing in that other than creating buzz by having like a snap reaction? And that's mm. rarely going to be the reaction that you end up with when the full film comes out. I don't know. I've I've, I've missed Fincher. One of my favourite things about uh, Fincher, and permit me to. Uh, Please indulge me in my astrology uh, nonsense. <laughs> David Fincher is possibly the most Virgo-y Virgo to ever Virgo. <laughs> and he would always talk about um, Steven Soderbergh, Capricorn, like me. You're welcome. Um, saying, like, I don't understand how Steven manages to make, like, <laughs> like a film every six weeks. <laughs> I, just, I just can't... Um, he has to make a masterpiece each time, which I respect. Mm. And I and I really like both of their outputs. Zodiac still just like chills me to this day. I d- mm. want like I know we all talk about it being good, and it's interesting that it was shot digitally. I'd forgotten that because I think it does have that really well how like grimy the blue and yellow sort of color palette is, and that it feels incredibly present. I think even you know. So yeah, we'll we'll see. But I guess I'm just telling everyone to have a biscuit and calm down, including myself. Yeah, I was just double-checking to make sure I was right. And in fact, Zodiac was apparently the first time a major studio feature had been shot and produced digitally without the use of video tech or compression. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so it's it's e- even more impressive considering uh, it was like one of the first to really do that on on that sort of scale. Obviously, there had been independent films produced that way for for a few years, but none of them uh, none of them looked that good, no. <laughs> or were that impactful. Um, but yes, uh, I'm I'm quite excited to see how Mank uh, turns out. I think will probably look really good when the Criterion Collection put it out on Blu-ray at some point, which seems to be what they're doing with Netflix features from kind of big name auteurs at the moment. But yeah, I'm I am I'm excited for it. I do think some of those images didn't look terribly great, but also like when you look at some of the others, it's like, ah, it's you know, there's only so many ways you can make Gary Oldman standing around on a ranch look like particularly visually compelling. Yeah, yeah. And I mean I'm a yeah, I'm I'm into that, but it's not everyone's thing. Yeah, uh, although I I will miss the, the 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 green, the greens and the sickly yellows that are so uh, so central to what he does. But, you know, maybe he can put more of them into an eventual third season of of Mindhunter if that ever happens. <laughs> Uh, in other news this week, uh, we got reports of two new director's cuts that I don't think anyone was really asking for. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I'm happy. I'm happy to to see what happens with them. Uh, the first of which was the news that Rocky Four is getting a new director's cut. They're they're doing like a re-release of it. Presumably, you know, they you know making it look as nice as possible for a new Blu-ray release. That's uh, Sylvester Stallone is overseeing, and he revealed on his Instagram in a series of incredibly contentious comments with people <laughs> who are like reacting to the news that he is cutting Paulie's uh, robot from it. Paulie, of course, the kind of like best friend character of rocky who is in all of the movies except for uh, i think five and six uh, i believe the actor had passed away that uh, sorry uh, rocky Balboa and creed because the actor had passed away by that point um and in the fourth one he gets a robot <laughs> and it's, it's always been... been i mean that film's ridiculous on so many levels but like the robot itself is is like the height of like mid 80s stallone being the biggest one of the biggest stars in hollywood being able to do whatever he wants and just kind of follow any whim he wants of him just being like yeah one of the characters and this is going to get like a surface robot that's going to be in a bunch of scenes and uh, it's part of the charm of that movie but he's basically said yeah i don't like the robot anymore and i find that to be really quite funny that he would decide to make that much of a change at this point it does kind of make me wonder if just the poorly character is not really going to be in the movie that much because i'm not sure there are many non-robot scenes featuring him yeah just 2020 keeps surprising me ed somehow <laughs> okay now i don't know if i think i've mentioned this story before but when i was uh this was about 10 years ago now and there was the big freeze in sheffield do you remember when oh, um, yeah. yeah um so couldn't go outside for a few days <laughs> a few days ed i couldn't go outside for a couple of days <laughs> oh christ and uh i was ostensibly training for my first half marathon mm-hmm. and i couldn't do any training and my uh my then boyfriend uh insisted that i watch all of the rocky films and it got Mm. to a point where i couldn't tell what was rocky and what was real anymore (laughs) so four is that was the point where it got really hazy for me but now i'm like wait so i didn't imagine that (laughs) yeah it's definitely one of the the biggest swings of that franchise (laughs) that that and rocky balboa 
revolving entirely around the fact that oh like Sylvester still uh, Rocky beat up this guy in a video game simulation <laughs> so maybe we should get real old Rocky in and fight him it's like what why this seems <laughs> this seems bad this seems very dangerous for everyone involved um the other uh, director's cut we got this week and this one is perhaps uh, a little more enticing uh, is that we're getting a new cut of Godfather Part 3 from Francis Ford Coppola, going to be called, which is going to be called Godfather Part 3 Coda, The mm. Death of Michael Corleone, which mm. is, as everyone said, a real anime-ass name. But I... <laughs> nice. But uh, I, I'm quite excited for this. I have never like totally understood the hate that Godfather Part 3 gets. Obviously, there are parts of it that don't work. They really missed Robert Duvall and Sofia Coppola unfortunately is not particularly good in the role that was meant to be given to uh, was meant to go to Winona Ryder and but it's still like a very good looking movie it's still it has some great moments and there's still a lot I think a lot to like to it's just you know it's not as good as the first two so obviously it has it has suffered by comparison but uh, I am really interested to see what Coppola does with that material if he's going to like make any radical changes to it because I went to see his recut of the Cotton Club last year which was a movie that I remember watching on TV years ago and thinking was was pretty bad like some interesting moments but largely just like a, a, a complete misfire and then the recut of it I thought oh wow this is like amazing this is such a, a wonderful movie and I'm not sure if he could totally do that with Godfather Part Three because obviously like there's there's just stuff you can't really get around with it into like you unless he's going to digitally insert Robert Duval back into it which would be uh, a quite a feat yeah maybe he's he's going to borrow the Irishman technology off of Scorsese but I still think it's really interesting to think what he would do with that and to see if there would be some sort of like major overhaul from it yeah it's interesting to see whenever an artist is like this is the thing I'm coming back to. And obviously, yeah, Godfather 3, I'm like, hmm, hmm, is it great? Is it not? But I don't think that's it. Maybe maybe his relationship is, is kind of a bit contested and he wants to kind of give it a sugar. I don't know. I still haven't seen 3 even, so I probably should before it comes out because I am, I am interested. Like, who doesn't... I mean, as we uh, wax lyrical about director's cuts in an earlier episode, but they are such fascinating, revealing and often quite vulnerable pieces i it's rare that a director's cut i enjoy more than like than the film but it is such a it's a window in it into into Mm. that person and i think it is extra fascinating when there is such a gap of time between the original release and the director's cut as opposed to like you know like with the director with the the yeah, the director's cut of Blade Runner, where there was like a ten-year gap, but basically all Scott did with that was he, you know, reconstructed the film as he would have released it at the time had he had his way. Whereas something like this, where Coppola put pretty much put out the movie that he wanted to or that he was you know able to make at the time, and now thirty some years later, being able to look back at it and say, okay, I'm a different artist now. You know, he's he's occupies a very different space. Uh, artistically, commercially, whatever than he did in the early nineties, what effect will that have on him? Like addressing this work that he made so many many years earlier, uh, and I think like yeah, I agree with you totally. That director's cuts are often very fascinating and revealing, and I think there is something quite 
uh, appealing uh, in a like an entirely different way about someone looking back on their work with that length of with that amount of hindsight you know yeah yeah and finally before we get into our main topic uh movies are back in cinemas sort of in some places Uh, (laughs) what a headline (laughs) big big movies are starting to come out again in in various territories the two kind of big ones uh being tenet which opened in the uk in a bunch of places last week and earned about 50 million dollars or something over the over its opening weekend which in absolute terms of what you expect a hollywood blockbuster to earn is not a lot uh if you had told us like last year that christopher nolan's new movie opened to 50 million dollars worldwide everyone would be like well his career's over (laughs) but in our our uh unprecedented times that number is like oh he saved cinema (laughs) numbers so you have to adjust your expectations somewhat but obviously that's that's been kind of like a big big news story and i think it's also opened in a couple of states over here at the moment depending although um not all of them because not every uh, state has got cinemas open uh, and am i want to say yeah it would have been warner brothers you know stipulated that the movie can only play in drive-ins in states where it's also playing in theaters so that limits it you know it can't play in uh california or new york i think because their theaters aren't open yet um but yeah movies are coming back you know big movies uh big movie big screen uh, in the words of, of tom cruise and one of the other movies that is kind of rolling out worldwide is the disney remake of mulan which has been received somewhat tepidly i think it would be fair to say maybe a mild way of putting it because uh, you know i i don't know about you you know i've been looking at reviews kind of you know seeing what people are saying but for the most part they do seem to veer from some people being really into it and thinking oh wow this is really cool and some people just being abs just like totally hating on it particularly it's you know political ramifications a story designed for a you know in some ways to appeal to a chinese market which you know uh in in some ways seems to be pro chinese government propaganda in some of its choices and yeah there's a lot of a lot of stuff whirling around it you know people calling to boycott it because of the lead uh, actors comments that seem to be like pro uh clamping down on protesters in hong kong last year like it, it seems definitely seems to be coming out to a response that is probably like less than ideal and kind of in retrospect maybe makes the decision by disney to put it on disney plus sooner rather than later make a little more sense yeah i I'm just so disappointed for everyone, you know, for the various communities who this film was going to be for. Like mm-hmm. my my friend who's um, Chinese British. I remember when the trailer came out and we were both so excited, and she was like, "I'm crying already! Like this is so incredible." Mm. I just, I mean, what what a letdown. <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, we're we're both um, yeah we're we're. So, talking about the initial response and neither of us have seen it yet but oh it's been it's been pretty vicious eh like i think at best it's tepid and at mm. worst it's hashtag boycott mulan <laughs> and, yeah. but are we that surprised about the chinese propaganda given disney um mm. sort of world powers and stuff <sighs> again i think it's it's time for me to roll out being flumped ed 
<laughs> I'm thoroughly flumped. And I do, I kind of want to see it. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm in a Disney Plus uh, household, but oh, I don't know. I don't know. At some point, it's, it certainly brought me right back down from raring to see it to uh, not caring to see it. Yeah, I think uh, one of the responses that I saw to it that kind of really... That was the, that really just kind of put a dampener on it for me was someone being like, yeah, like the the one from nineteen ninety eight felt like it had more like radical and insightful politics than the new one. And I think wow, and Disney weren't even trying with that one; <laughs> they weren't even trying to pretend to be progressive and inclusive. And that and also it inspired a great uh, drill uh, tweet, which was. Uh, I was already boo- boycotting Mulan because it's for kids, but now it might make a Hong Kong policeman angry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so we'll go on to our main topic this week. And, you know, I mentioned uh, a moment ago that Tenet is uh, climbing the charts. It's setting the world on fire in a different way to how it usually is. And uh, so I thought it'd be fun to talk about time because Christopher Nolan, who directed Tenet, is often considered to be a director who is obsessed with time in, in various ways, notably in this movie, which, again, neither of us have seen. But, uh, you know, we've seen the trailers and uh, we know kind of bits and pieces about it, uh, you know, where it's all about people being able to manipulate time and things like that. And obviously some of his other movies use time as a plot device structurally. Obviously his breakthrough movie Memento was told in a non-linear fashion and his most recent movie Bryce Tenet like Dunkirk was you know told in different time periods so he's he's a he's a, a director who uh for whom that is like a real fascination and so I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about the ways in which movies different movies use time as a subject as a stylistic choice as a structural choice uh because obviously time as it relates to movies is a very it's it's like one of the key things that i think is distinguishes film as an art form is you know editing being able to jump between different time periods in a moment's notice in a way that you can't do convincingly in 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 theater because you know it takes a while to do setups and things like that if you want to jump between different time periods or whatever or jump into someone's memory and also it's hard to do as visually in like a novel because you can write 200 words about someone remembering something or you can just juxtapose two two shots together and you know like so there's there's an element to filmmaking where you know time is is like so central i will kick off by saying um a friend of mine who uh we used to argue quite a bit in terms of christopher nolan because i am not i'm not that into him at all uh or his work not a, de- not a fan of dead wives <laughs> His other, his other main thing. <laughs> and just giving Michael Caine, throwing him a bone, because he needs mm-hmm. one, yeah. apparently. Oh, uh, yes, Stuart Law's Michael Caine. I know I recommended him, but I'm recommending him again. <laughs> Never! Um, yeah, that is, that is a, a great... In, in the uh, overstuffed uh, marketplace of front-facing comedy videos... <laughs> That was really good. Oh, I really hope you tweet him that. I'm sure he'd delight in that overstuffed <laughs> front facing. My my, uh, and yeah. So I'm not. I'm not a fan of. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I'm sorry to that dead wife, but I'm not. I'm really not into Nolan <laughs> at all. Um, and I'm particularly not into the wild decision when Inception came out to really hammer hard. Like he's thought so much about this, you guys. Oh my god, he's he's mm. he has put so much time 
into this, right? Mm -hmm. It's all this effort. And I was like, it's a dream and a dream and a dream. What, yeah. What's what's so kind of amazing about that? It took it took you 10 years to, to, to what? And I think it's this kind of faux intellectualism that really bothers me because it's like, you know, intelligent blockbusters or smart blockbusters that we talk about. And, and Nolan's one of kind of the big ones. And, you know, I have, I guess I watched those Batman films a while ago and, you know, they're all right. Like they're quite interesting, but don't keep shoving it in my face saying how amazingly smart it is. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't make anyone come off well. It doesn't make snobbish little cinephiles like myself, but I'm like, oh, I really think you should acquaint yourself with the work of uh, Cassavetes, yes, you should really acquaint yourself with the work of Cassavetes if you want to talk deep um, and smart. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, and what? So, like, you're saying that people who enjoy blockbusters are stupid? Well, that's mm -hmm. good. Well done. So, I oh, just oh, don't like it. Don't like it at all. And it's happened a bloody again with Tenet. But the thing that, like, amazed me is that, uh, so this, this uh, friend of mine went to go and see it and he sent me a 12 minute long review, the <laughs> opening five seconds of which are like, Okay, it's just the dumbest fucking movie. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, if he thinks it's stupid and like pointless. And, and again, and he was saying like, and it really felt like they were just pushing this kind of, it's so smart in my face. It's fine. It's fine to enjoy something that is like slick. We don't have to, we, we don't have to sort of try and qualify it as somehow clever in order to be good. Like that's fine. Mm. And so I think, and again, I'm pulling <laughs> slight rank in that in all of those like 20 years that Nolan has been thinking about Inception and Tenet. I don't know if he did a philosophy degree at any point, but I've, I want to say he did. Did he? I, I, I want to say cause I'm trying to remember what he was studying because his first movie, he didn't study film. He just like made following on the oh, weekends yeah. with his university friends. And I, I want to say, yes, I mean, that that, that is a, a really good like movie for it how it was made i'm just fact checking and it well i mean according to wikipedia english lit at ucl is what he did um, uh, okay so i don't know quick scanning trying to find an actual but no i don't think he did and look a philosophy degree does not mean you know uh, I, I won't go into the sort of <laughs> ivory towers of academia you can do philosophy without a philosophy degree right but i am just bringing that up because Doing philosophy at the University of Sheffield was amazing, and I got to do a module on fucking time travel. It was philosophy cool. of well, it was philosophy of time, but basically everyone's just sitting there being like, "Can we go back or forward?" <laughs> and there is so much writing about this, like really incredible philosophical work, and like all of these different theories of time, saying like maybe time is actually a dimension that's very similar to place. So you could essentially like return and go go back in the same way that you could be you know, uh, in Scotland. And then I could come and see you in Florida and return. Like maybe time is like that. Um, mm -hmm. like just so just lots of boffins having wild <laughs> mind pictures and writing, writing them down. And it's, that's the thing. I, the thing that annoys me is that I don't think Nolan has actually listened to anyone else. Right. I don't mm -hmm. think he, I don't, I, I don't get the sense that he's having conversations with people who will say, oh, that's an interesting idea. Have you thought about this deeper or in this way? Or have you read this person and, and their work? He's literally just gone, I've had the best fucking idea. No one else has had it. <laughs> and gone into this like blinkered tunnel vision thing. And I think the difference is like Interstellar is 
I think better because it has that emotion in it because it has that heart and also like you know Kit Thorne and all of the actual sort of like science behind it and I think mm. that is impressive and visually like stunning um I'm still I'm still not wild about it but I will give it and him that and I think because Interstellar uses time in a much more emotional way mm. just before we came on Ed you were saying you know as uh Matthew, all right, all right, all right. McConaughey is like looking at his daughter, age, like, oh my God, like, and thinking about, you know, entropy and aging and death mm. and like all of this stuff. Um, that's a very compelling, moving moment. But like, I think also in terms of time with Nolan, I think he thinks he's talking about time, but really he's thinking about perspective, I think. Like mm -hmm. all of that chat in Inception and the, the way that you can read it as like Inception is actually a heist movie about trying to make a movie and all of these yeah. different people are all these different. And I think that's an interesting reading of it. I do not think Nolan intended that. <laughs> so I'm going all in on, on Chris today, but it reminded me of one of my favorite, favorite films, um, possible worlds by Robert LePage. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so God, that must be what, 20 years ish old now. But I think the thing that I love about possible worlds is that it uses the cinematic language to play with time and place and perception in, in a way I'd never seen before. It's just like the most exquisitely shot and edited film in terms of its flow and how it, it communicates to you through on a very pure cinematic level. And I think that's kind of what Nolan's sort of trying to do as well. <sighs> yeah. I, I don't know if I'll even bother seeing Tenet. The stuff in this 12 minute review was like, I was I was nudging him to post it and make it go viral <laughs> because I think it could. But like I mean, and he read me a bit of the Guardian review as well that referred to Kenneth 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 Branagh Kenneth Branagh's promising camp of the first scene something something the ham spoils into <laughs> bog standard rottery like oh mm, mm. like happy for any film to come out that inspires such a <laughs> such a response as that like a beautiful piece of film criticism but oh, i i mean it's a it's a palindrome in it mm. oh it's the same backwards and forwards mm. yeah I, <laughs> I i stand by my belief that the movie would be better if it was called race car Yes, yes. Give me a time traveling car. Oh, wait, there's a movie that uses that. Damn. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, to return to what you were saying about like intelligent blockbusters, like, yeah, I think that that's the thing that has always kind of annoyed me a lot about Christopher Nolan. I think he kind of struck the balance reasonably well in the first two Batman movies, where, like, you know, particularly in the second one, where it's like all about the surveillance states and, you know, like all these people talked about it as being. A, a, like maybe an apology uh, for the like Bush era kind of like growth of Homeland Security and some people being like, well, actually, no, it's kind of like criticizing it because they blow up at the end. They realize it was wrong. And like, nah, 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 nah. where like there's these stuff kind of like roiling under the surface for it. But, you know, at the end of the day, like Christian, from, Christopher, you know, Christian Bale punches a bunch of people, you know, like so it's still yeah. fun. Yeah, like there's still a lot of fun going around, like Heath Ledger's having a ball, all this sort of stuff. Whereas, like, I feel like a lot of the subsequent ones 
really go out of their way to try and explain everything that they're doing and to really show you that he's put in the work like in Interstellar with like all the sciencey stuff uh like to really explain all that sort of stuff and I, I think that really doesn't pass muster in like a post fury world uh fury road world yeah oh yeah 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 because like fury road has all of that stuff where you can kind of like read into it about you know talking about feminism and you know all of the, the stuff it's got roiling under the surface but also it has that just like surface level haha fast car go fast haha you know like you can just really and you enjoy you can really enjoy it on like a lizard brain level i do and i feel I like do. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like a lot of christopher nolan's blockbuster work really suffers from the fact that you know and everyone like makes fun of interstellar for being like every every line of dialogue is like in uh explanation and exposition of what the hell's going on and like trying to explain you the rules and why the rules have changed and all this sort of stuff and there's not as much like fun and character stuff to it as compared to you know fury road which is nothing but fun character stuff and every so often someone makes a point that kind of subtly explains the world or, or what's going on yeah but that's always kind of been my my problem with and and that's in some ways why i really liked dunkirk because it didn't feel like it was explaining anything anything about its structure in fact some people were really confused by it even though i think it's fairly straightforward in when it's jumping between the different time periods and how each one like one covers a week one covers a day one covers an hour and all that sort of stuff but the movie because there would be no way to explain that within the world of the movie it'd be super weird for anyone to draw attention to the fact that there are three different time periods unfurling at the same time uh it it, it kind of doesn't detract from anything it can be more about the experiential thing of these people going through war and you know being trapped in this horrible situation and and all the stories eventually converging when when he's uh explaining himself i kind of feel like all the the movies completely lose their purpose and their sense of energy yeah. um but to stop bragging on uh, christopher <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry i'll put that away for... that was my fault <laughs> No, I mean, it's fun too. Uh, it is fun. And, and... It's easy and fun. But time, time yeah. marches on. Yeah. <laughs> we will leave ragging on Christopher Nolan in the past. And now it is now. <laughs> and if people if people can time travel by hitting the back 30 seconds button and just kind of enjoy it again. If they choose to. <laughs> Another filmmaker like of, of a similar generation to Christopher Nolan, although he started working uh, a few years earlier, who is also often talked about as being obsessed with time although he himself i don't think has kind of gone on about it as much is richard linklater who is about is interested in time in a more pragmatic way i would say which in actually ends up being more poetic but just because of how straightforward he is but you know in the before trilogy and in boyhood you know he is very kind of matter of factly making these movies that are very like slice of life very much kind of about people existing in the world having conversations with each other but the there is a real profound weight uh, 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 applied to them because of the way in which he makes those movies which you know in the case of the before trilogy he made before sunrise in 1995 and it was just this like hey these these two people meet whilst they're in vienna and you know they spend the day together and then they part ways and then there's the the question of you know will they ever see each other again will they meet up as they plan to and then nine years later he makes before sunset and realize and, and kind of picks up the story there and then before midnight nine years after that and i think there what's really interesting is there is the 
story the you know the story of the films which is about the these two people played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy who meet when they're in their 20s meet again when they're in their 30s and when you see them in their 40s they're married and each time you're checking with them for a very short period of time you're getting a sense of what their lives have become how their lives have changed how they changed as people and you know there is something incredibly moving to that just on a basic level of you know you see these actors age because nine years has passed for them as it has for the characters and you are getting a real sense of how the characters philosophies or that have changed or how their approaches to life have been altered by the fact they've gone through all these experiences that we don't have access to we only get these brief glimpses of them but then the kind of outside of that particularly you know if you're not just watching them all in one sitting because they're all out on criterion now if you you know were watching them as they came out every time you watch it it's like oh i'm nine years older i'm yeah different to how i was uh like and that was one of the reasons why like like i saw before sunrise and before sunset pretty much at the same time because like i learned about those movies i learned about before sunrise when before sunset came out it's like okay i'll watch those two movies because that sounds really interesting yeah and i found them to be like really beautiful movies and i like i really liked them but i didn't have quite the same emotional reaction that i did to watching before midnight because then it was like oh right it's been nine years i'm nine years older my life has changed quite a bit over that time i live in a different country now and all this sort of stuff yeah and i think that is one of the things that makes that adds a real weight to those movies is the the um, how grounded in reality they are not necessarily in terms of the stories they're telling but just in the 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 prosaic kind of reality of like i am watching people age on screen over this time and i to an extent i'm aging with them yeah for sure i think i can track my emotional maturity by how i now see before sunrise almost a bit like a horror film Mm, (laughs) i just think it's so romantic but then you know what is also still the basis for this i i just yeah i love the before trilogy slash franchise perchance maybe linky the next one will be over zoom (laughs) yeah it would it would in two years time um and you know what i'm here for it i'm 100 percent here for it and i think that sensation of like and seeing them sort of what what time and age and living life does to jesse and celine as people in their in their gender like Mm -hmm. how celine is just I don't know, it's kind of scary, like, how different she is in Before Midnight to Before Sunrise, mm. you know, and and that kind of... Well, in my head, I like to think that um, Ethan Hawke is playing the same character in Boyhood and in mm-hmm. Before, and uh, poor Patricia Arquette is <laughs> dealing with... Anyway, that's a fun game for me. <laughs> Not sure if anyone else <laughs> enjoys it. And how Ethan Hawke, like, like, has he grown up? Is he a man now? Like is the sort of boyishness something that she was attracted to and like and the fact that basically basically the end of before midnight is a is is the time machine is sex that is like the final (laughs) that's how we travel through time god linky must have given himself a day off after writing that one yeah, I think as well, like, I'm, I'm quite set on this kind of, like, time and perception of time as well. And that's why I think Slacker's quite so amazing. Um, mm. And it is that feeling of, like, I hadn't smoked weed before I watched Slacker. But when I then tried weed for the first time, I was like, oh, it's like watching Slacker. <laughs> that was mm, my point yeah. of reference. 
I think also massive spoiler for Destroyer coming because yay, I get to mention Karen Kasama again. I think Destroyer had one of the best endings in terms of time. And again, it was one of those things where it was like, oh, cinema is such an incredible engine for experiencing time Mm -hmm. because it was that real kind of me punching the air twist of like, oh, Karen went there. They did that. You thought it was the beginning, the end, and it all comes back and it's, oh my God. And again, kind of uh, similar to Pan's Labyrinth in Mm. that that is like, a, a dream it's sort of it's every time I, I think about Pan's Labyrinth like oh it's just devastating isn't it it's like the idea of like the horror of this child child system trying to work out what's happening to it and how tragic that is and like I think Contact is also a big one for me where you know Jodie Foster has this incredible experience but then they're like, oh, you know, it's not that you were gone for like however many seconds and we feel that, we understand that and that and that awe and that strangeness. I think, because uh, I know we talked about it a lot uh, when it came out, but Watchmen and how mm-hmm. they were trying to use time and trauma and history. And again, Dr. Manhattan, who sees through all space of time, he, uh, no, no one uh, present moment can contain him, uh, mm-hmm. which is quite a... Quite a creative excuse for adultery, let's be fair. Um, <laughs> I think they did a really solid job of trying to represent that. Mm. And I think you you are afforded by a multi-episode format, aren't you, in a way that I don't think you are necessarily always in cinema. But yeah, I found that pretty affecting. Yeah, and I think um, one of the other things that really got me thinking about this topic was I watched the first part of... 63 up which is mm. obviously the ninth movie in the up series um from mainly from michael apted particularly from uh uh seven plus seven i think was the second one where you know it's this this long-running documentary series where every seven years he checks in with these you know initially children who and, and you know kind of like sees where they are what they've been up to what what the previous seven years have meant in their lives and you know, you see them age over over you know, 60 uh over 56 years i guess you know from when they're age seven to now they're all in their 60s uh well the, the ones that are still alive are in their 60s and i've always found those movies to be particularly powerful in that way because you know when you if you watch them in order as i did when they were all on netflix for a bit there is something just like profoundly moving to seeing them gradually you know age and then by the time you're getting to the last couple of films in the series there's always like a montage at the beginning of each segment where they talk to a different person where they just show clips from all these different times to kind of remind you of what's happening because a lot can happen over 56 years and they kind Mm. of need to like situate you and to figure out okay this is who this person was okay yes i remember i remember what they were doing he was homeless for a while you know he was a priest and he helped him out and all this sort of stuff you know you're kind of like trying to keep it straight in your mind and by the point that you are like like in in 63 up and i guess spoilers it's hard to say spoilers for a documentary (laughs) but you know one of the um neil i believe his name is uh you know he is this like 
northern kid who like grows up to become a nuclear physicist and goes and works in america and you kind of like check in on him in each point in his life and each time you see him you kind of get this like sense of him as being this like guy who really made it even for all of his troubles you know like he gets divorced at, at one point and you know kind of has this you know, rocky journey in places you know he is someone who's gone so far from you know growing up on a farm in you know, in yorkshire or whether and then in 63 up they meet him and he's dying of cancer and there is just something so absolutely devastating of seeing in rapid succession all these like clips of him as like a precocious kid and then like you know like kind of awkward teen and you know kind of coming into his own adult to then like talking about the day-to-day difficulty of being in like tremendous pain and dealing with this this disease and those films were always very powerful in that in that respect you know of just that montage of images and just being just kind of like hammered with the sheer amount of time and the sheer weight of it yeah. in such a short period of time. But when you're getting to the point where, you know, one of the participants has since passed away and, you know, Neil, you know, like may not be around for when they do 70 up. It's uh, Michael Aptev himself may not be because he is in his eighties now, you know, there is just something just like profoundly uh, poignant about those movies. Now at this point where you're getting to the point where, so many of the participants are reaching that age uh but also this last one was uh particularly impactful i think because so much of it watching it you know with my my mum who's watched all of them as well and who is pretty much the same age as the people in it and so she has like very keen memories of watching all the previous installments as they aired uh, so much of it was trying to guess who voted for Brexit and who didn't. <laughs> and just kind of thinking, like, <laughs> wow, a shitload of stuff happened over the last seven years. And, like, just imagining having to check in with all of these uh, people where they kind of, like, talk about their experiences of the, the seismic events that have really kind of shaken Britain in particular uh, over the last seven years. And, like, that in and of itself is 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 really powerful. And it is, like, you know, that thing of if you are friends with someone and then you don't see them for a while and then you you kind of see them after a long time and catch up you know that rush of on the one level you're hit with the memories of who they were as a person when you knew them but then also like oh like they've changed in some ways you know so like it, it kind of recreates that mixture of emotions that i think you feel a lot of the time in real life particularly you know as you get into, as you get older I, I think that that's one of the things that makes them particularly special and is, is the sort of thing that you can only really do in in cinema slash yeah, TV. But, you know, yeah. those movies play in cinemas in America, so I think it's fine to refer to them as cinema. I agree. I think I've, I've still not seen the um, Up, I guess we'll call them the, the Up um, series, but what I remember is uh, Child of Our Time, which is a Professor mm. Rob Winston BBC so a social experiment. All these so there's me at 10 watching all these babies being born and it was just this strange kind of like every year being like oh I'll get to see the kids <laughs> as a kid mm-hmm. and feeling like then watching them be 10 and yeah it's just that kind of uncanny valley feeling it's it's or maybe just the uncanny rather than uncanny valley but yeah it's just uncanny that kind of like oh it's like existential vertigo you're just like uh but it's devastating it really is and like seeing them all kind of well, just that stuff happens. And, and yeah, one one of the kids on Child of Our Time died very suddenly. And mm. it's, yeah, it's, it's just devastating. And I think in terms of like 
the the running time of a film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just thinking back to, of course, The Irishman, which I still giggle yeah. about in terms of like, yeah, great job on <laughs> De Niro's face. <laughs> but still, I think you do, as the aging is authentic and it comes in alignment with itself, the actual duration of The Irishman is warranted because I do feel like you, mm. you really do live through that with him. Yeah. And and again, Scorsese gets time. I, I think, you know, because forever I am flag, uh, waving the flag for the age of innocence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like how we sort of speed up and catch up time towards the end of that. That is pretty, oh, it gets me every time, Ed. Mm. I think... The Irishman was on my list as well. I think the, the the key to its length and its structure is the fact that Hoffa dies with like an hour still to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's so key to the emotional impact of that movie because it could very easily have been like, oh, you know, we made this movie is all about the guy that maybe killed Jimmy Hoffa. Who knows? But, you know, like it's an interesting story and, you know, we can comment on what Jimmy Hoffa meant in terms of American, like political culture at the time what a powerful figure he was the forces he was aligned with you know and this, this sense of you know in in some ways his death is as much kind of a death of the promise of a certain kind of america as you know the death of his much hated kennedys was but on the uh, but and you could have ended with him him dying and it, you know you would have had a fine movie but because you have to sit with that death as frank does yeah. for so long you do really feel the weight of what that death does of him having to lie to his family about it and lie to the world about it because you see the complete like rot of his life from that point onwards his isolation and so much that is down to the fact that it is a long slow movie yeah and i think that is subtly kind of like different because like the first three hours of the movie, you know, they don't exactly fly by, but they move fairly quickly. It's jumping around from different stories and, you know, like year-wise, it's kind of jumping ahead reasonably well. But from that point, it really feels as if the movie stagnates because that's what's happening to Frank's life. Like, the one person who seems to uh, care about him in any kind of like real way and any person he really cared about and had that connection with is dead. He killed him. And he has to kind of like live with that for the next 50 fucking years of his life or whatever, however long he lived afterwards. And that is like the the, the the length of the movie in addition to the fact that it is, you know, charting his life and his aging uh, really compounds that in a way. A more uplifting kind of approach to that is something like Hoop Dreams, I think. Where mm. It's a long movie. It's three hours long or whatever. But because you are following the lives of these young boys from like being teens to being in their early 20s like you really do feel the 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 length of their journey how far they come how much change in their life and how like you know you have this like really bittersweet thing where on the one hand their dreams of playing in the nba don't come to fruition and you know their lives don't turn out how they would want them to but you do go on this journey with them where you see them kind of like grow and mature and become different people and that's another case where you not only does a movie cover a, a fairly decent chunk of of time, but you, it takes a long time to get there. But that you feel as if taking that time is warranted and really adds to the effect. 
Absolutely. And I felt that a lot with OJ Made in America as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible in terms of, like, I just could not get enough of that documentary. Mm. Absolutely stunning work in terms of kind of the setup and time and place and context. I think it really takes its time to tell you about all the times. Time, time, time. Mm. Time has lost all meaning, including the word time. Shifting from movies that take a long time or well, i mean some of these movies are long but they are tend to be a little punchier uh i wanted to talk a little bit about movies that occur in real time because yes they obviously have a very different relationship to time as a concept to than some of the movies that we're talking about you know in fact they are the exact opposite of something like the up series or whatever where you know you think of movies that are compressing a huge amount of time into a short a short window these are movies that are that really make you feel every second often uh to thrilling effect i noticed when i was trying to looking up movies that occur in real time pretty much all of them were uh, thrillers in some way except of course for the aforementioned uh before sunset which is I mean, it's tr- it's thrilling to see them on screen together again, <laughs> but you know that is more about you know it's unfolding at a, a more or less real time pace, and you're just kind of like tracking their conversation. But yeah, for, for but the I, most part, a lot of them I would are, are genre. Yeah, true, true. But I would argue that like before sunset is is a thriller because it's just mm. will they or won't they, and they're against the clock. And I that's true. And I feel like that is kind of it doesn't feel like a romantic drama because that tension is just all the way through. Um, so I'd say like for the most part, if you're in real time, you're looking for tension or the only thing I can think of is um, Roger and Val have just got in. Yes. Which is oh, wow. so overlooked. That's a great right? it's, it's gorgeous. Cause it doesn't, is mum in real time as well. I'd forgotten. Not quite. It's, I think it's that thing where, each episode takes place over like a fairly short period of time, but it's not in the like, same location. Yeah, but it's not, not literally. This these episodes are lasting thirty minutes, and they're covering thirty minutes. Right, right, right. Yeah, because Roger and Val just got in is just in terms of acting, like Alfred Molina and Dawn French. Mm. Yes, please. And it is that very immediate, relatable domestic thing of like essentially the first half hour when you're in the house. Mm-hmm. but how moving that ended up being like yeah utterly devastating because it is these just sort of court moments and my mum would always say oh i love things where nothing happens but everything happens and like i think roger and val is have just got in is is that but i think it's that kind of it, it's easing into the sort of everyday banality and that's when stuff just starts to kind of tumble out mm-hmm. yeah but that's definitely <laughs> It's not a thriller. <laughs> That's the only one I can think of. But there's tension, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and there is the, the tension between the two of them and the thing they're not talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Un- unless he's in his uh, his waders, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> the cr- the crucial scene from that show, which oh, I haven't watched that film in I haven't watched that show in ages. Me wow. neither. I hope it's somewhere. Yeah, that episode is one of those moments on television that's really imprinted on me, just being like, this wasn't what I was expecting at all. No. I'm really delighted with how it went. It's a stunning, um, yeah. But uh, some of the examples I had of, of real-time films, um, or ones that are more or less in real-time, because I'm, I'm not sure all of them are like, you know, 88 minutes, where they're like, bang on, this is how long this movie is. Although, even 88 minutes cheats by being like, okay, the, the first 20 minutes don't count. It's from this point onwards, the film lasts 88 minutes. It's like, come on. But... Uh, 
uh, Locke is a kind of uh, a recent example uh, of a movie yeah. that I think makes good use of being in real time of Tom Hardy just trapped in a car talking about a concrete and the biggest poor in Europe and <laughs> poor up yes <laughs> and uh, you know kind of fielding all these phone calls from various people in his life and s- realizing that like his um edifice of being like a, a family man is falling around uh is falling apart around him and there is something about the fact that it unfurls in pretty much real time that really adds to that like you say like there is tension to it it's the fact that this car journey it's gonna last as long as it takes there's not going to be kind of like a shortcut they're not going to kind of like cut out a lot of time he, he we are trapped in this car for him for the same amount of time that he is trapped in the car with himself and with these phone calls and trying to in some way piece together the the mess that he has made and i think that's a movie that could be completely laughable because of it, it's about a, a concrete man and <laughs> Whatever, whatever his job is, uh, having a, 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 a crisis. But I do feel like the fact that it is in real time, the fact that it is so claustrophobic yeah. is like the key to why it works because that there is that sense. Yeah, same, yeah. same as Buried. Like, let's, mm-hmm. let's literally bury Ryan Reynolds alive. And I think, I don't care, like that to me is like, it is an excellent film. It's also trash, but it's genuinely mm-hmm. excellent in terms of how they film it, how gripping it is. And how good he is as well. Like, he, he's not... he is so good because he, he's literally, it's just him. And mm. and the long spaces in which he doesn't, he's not on the phone, you know, and that real visceral panic. And I don't think he even like has a nap or anything, does he? He's just, he's mm. awake and, and terrified and all of that. Oh, yeah that that film is so well shot yeah incredibly uh i mean I, at the time it got a lot of attention but i kind of feel it's one of those movies that hasn't really been remembered much over the years since then and i think it's it's one of those movies again like Lockway. it's kind of easy to think to dismiss it as some sort of like gimmick or whatever mm. but i think it it works so well within that gimmick and it really does it's one of those things in the same way that i think we're starting to see a lot of people come to try to grapple with you know using computer interfaces as a way of telling stories like unfriended was the kind of the big one or searching yeah that was one of those ones where you could really see people in buried and lock people trying to really use the mobile phone as a, as a generation of tension as well where it's like okay like so much of this is just going to happen over the phone and a person being trapped in an enclosed space with nothing else they can do and I think those two movies kind of like really used it well in a way that, you know, whereas most, as we've discussed in the past, like most writers or directors, when they talk about having to use a mobile phone in a movie, just view it as an absolute impediment because it limits their potential for what they can do because like, it's a thing they have to explain away. Whereas uh, in those two movies, there was that real sense of like, Oh no, they're really embracing the possibilities of like, what if, we don't think mobile phones are an absolute impediment because we have to kind of think of a way to have it stop working or whatever. What if we just fully embrace the use of it as a dramatic device? Somewhat older than either of those, no mobile phones in this one. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Yeah. Which is yeah. I was gonna I was gonna chat Rope again. Ph- yeah. Sorry, philosophy student. I feel like that. Uh, the marine biologist in oh the whale biologist in Futurama. Sorry, whale biologist. <laughs> Sorry, philosophy student. <laughs> 
We're not all murderers, I promise. <laughs> but that's one where obviously it's filmed in real time. It's or, or it's kind of pretending to be. Obviously, there's there's hidden edits so that it's makes it seem like it's a single take when it's actually a bunch of ten minute takes kind of stitched together. But that is so effective at doing that because you know you are seeing these people in this space we obviously as an audience know that there's a dead body in the room and only two other characters know that so so much of the tension is of us being in this space with these people experiencing time at the same pace that they are and knowing that at some point someone is going to look in that goddamn trunk and figure out what's happened and there is something so even though i think there's a certain creakiness to that movie because of you know the limitations of what they were trying to do with the technology they had at the time the tension of it again to go back to that word tension really is quite palpable throughout there is that real sense of like god when is someone gonna figure this out when is someone gonna realize that these two guys have have done something and it's really it's really really well done and jimmy stewart my babe just as he's sort of realizing and like i could just i could just watch Jimmy Stewart pull these hor- like faces of horror and, and awakening mm-hmm. like consistently for sure. Yeah. And then uh, finally in terms of, of, of time, because I realised that we've been going for, for quite some time. Um, <laughs> one of the other kind of like main subgenres like uh, or, or subcategories I thought for this discussion uh, were films that use kind of like a non-linear structure. Because obviously, again, to go back to Christopher Nolan, that was kind of the the big thing with when Memento came out is that that was a fairly, in some ways, a fairly straightforward neo-noir story. But it was told in a way that was kind of like really chopped and screwed up in a way that made it really intriguing and fascinating. And, you know, like using the retrograde amnesia as both a plot point and a structural idea you know, was really, really effective. Um but, obviously, but, you know, he's he's far from the first person to kind of, like, use a non-linear approach to filmmaking. And I think that is, again, one of those things that works really effectively in filmmaking, as opposed to a lot of other media, is that it's so easy to jump between different time periods. Or you can have a story kind of, like, play out in different... Like, you see different events from different people's perspectives. One of the first movies that kind of came to my mind in that regard, would be Gus Van Sant's Elephant, where you are seeing the story of a school shooting, obviously inspired by Columbine, from a number of different characters' perspectives. And instead of doing the thing that would be, you know, fairly obvious, which is like you jump around from different characters' perspectives until, and they all are moving forward at more or less the same pace, you know, he watches the build-up to the shooting from one character's perspective and then as the shooting is about to start it cuts to a different person back in time and watches what they were doing up until the perspective until you get to the you know the point of view of the shooters and you see their day and you follow them and then the shooting actually starts and and that's kind of how you go into the end of the movie and i feel like that's a very effective thing because so much of that movie is about the crushing boredom of everyday life and how just like it can feel like any other day and then something horrible and and you know momentous in the worst possible way can occur which is a horrible um metaphor for american life in so many ways it was in 2003 it's even more so now but i i feel like a large part of why that movie is so impactful is that approach that sense of like each time you are being forced to sit with these people you know something horrible is going to happen to them 
you're following them up until the moment that it happens to them and then suddenly he cuts back and says okay now here's someone else who is kind of on a trajectory to this horrible thing that's going to happen and then cuts back again and every time it's really uh it, it increases the anxiety because at a certain point you're just like just just show me the fucking shooting stop kind of yeah. stop forcing me to live with the lives of these normal teenagers whose lives are about to get blown apart yeah yeah and uh, the other kind of like non-linear movie a happier one although it's also really depressing but it's, it's not about shooting at least is uh stanley donan's two for the road which is yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, Wonderful movie from 1967 with, I want to say, Albert Finney and Aubrey Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, uh, where they are a couple who are on a road trip together. But as they are going on this road trip, you know, as their marriage is kind of falling apart, you keep cutting back to them on a previous on previous road trips going along the same roads. And they the movie keeps like jumping backwards and forwards between the present day and the past you kind of see them at different points in their relationship when things were you know better or, or kind of elucidating different tensions that maybe weren't as bad in the past and are now really kind of fully formed and there's lots of funny visual gags that donan does where like they're driving along the road and then they drive past their past selves in order to kind of like transition over into the different time period and I th- i've always really appreciated the way that movie uses time in a really kind of like playful but you know also very uh poignant way to kind of reflect on these characters lives and how they've changed over this time and, and ultimately why their relationship fell apart so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot Shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well, when you and I were chatting um, off mic, Ed, um, we were chatting a little bit about Search Party, so not to mm. sort of uh, spoil too much, but we're thinking of doing an episode on that in a, in a few weeks. Um, basically, once I've been able to get my my hands on season three, I want it, give it to me. Um, include, and all of Dory's clothes as well, please. But it reminded me of this wonderful, absolutely batshit short film that John Reynolds did. Um, and mm. it is called To the Moon. So if you, uh, and it is, I, I think it has one of the best log lines of anything ever. All right, you ready? Sure. A senile sportscaster by the name of Bath Pencil attempts to find an old love by reading his memoir to a bunch of little kids. <laughs> and that really is what happens. Um, it was recommended to me by my great friend Cal Smith, who um, describes things as LBOB, lovely bit of business. And this, mm-hmm. it truly is an LBOB. Um, so that's my that's my rec to the moon. Cool. I'm going to recommend a documentary that I watched uh, this week for the first time uh, called Exporting Raymond, which is a documentary from 2010. Uh, by Phil Rosenthal, who is now uh, arguably best known for his food programs, uh, including one that he does on Netflix. I believe that one is Somebody Feed Phil. There's one called Yes. They got there's a couple of different names, but they're essentially the same show of him traveling around to all these different places and trying food. And he's a wonderfully uh, charming and charismatic and hugely enthusiastic host who just seems like a, a total delight. But exporting Raymond was his kind of first venture into that space and it is a documentary all about him 
going to Russia after Everybody Loves Raymond, the show that he created, had uh, gone off the air in order to try and sell a Russian language remake of the show. And he kind of goes over there as a consultant, as obviously the creator of the show, someone who, who knows the, the show intimately. And he it's all about his efforts to try and take what he thinks as being this incredibly universal story of like marriage and, you know, the kind of the tensions that uh, break out of any relationship and uh, convert it to something that, you know, would chime with Russian audiences and the tension that then emerges from the Russian writers who say, like, these jokes don't really quite work, these stereotypes that you were playing with, all these ideas don't quite uh, chime with our society. And it's just a really fascinating look at a process, a creative process that is kind of, like, thwart with culture clash kind of tensions and comedy has some like wonderfully absurd bits where he uh insist where phil insists that they have to have a live studio audience watching the show in order for the actors but then he he is then told oh the audience can't make any noise because they will uh disrupt the recording so he just ends up in this room with this group of russians sitting stony-faced while a comedy show is happening which is really funny and really weird and he, uh, Phil Rosenthal, is just such a, a delightful, funny presence, and it's really funny watching him just get increasingly stressed out by this process that he thought would be really uh, simple, but ends up being quite uh, complicated. And it's it's really fun over here in the US. It's currently on the Criterion Channel, which is a weird place for it to have turned up, <laughs> but it is really good, and you know, it's a really fun, interesting ninety-something minute documentary. So that is exporting Raymond. I want it. I want it. Why is everything on Amazon? I'm trying to stay away. Oh my god! Please, guys, <laughs> sort it out. Give it to me. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>